This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, the pursuit of justice in Mexico and Guatemala will discuss how some groups want a reckoning for human rights abuses. But first, Chorzy Martin is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. An upset win for the underdog in Peru's presidential race. Pedro Pablo Kuczynski squeaked out the narrowest of victories, and his presidential triumph remains unofficial as Peru's electoral authorities examined at least 50,000 ballots for possible irregularities. Kuczynski, a former finance minister, says he's ready to heal any divisions caused by the intense presidential campaign. I am ready to have a dialogue with the opposition. Let's not confuse dialogue with division. Kuczynski beat Keiko Fujimori in the election. Fujimori is the daughter of former dictator Alberto Fujimori. It's the second time she has lost a presidential election by a close vote. Kuczynski took 50.1% of the vote to her 49.9%. Only 42,000 votes separate the two. So ballot examinations and recounts could still change the race. But many electoral experts say it would be nearly impossible for Fujimori to make up the difference in a recount. Fujimori had been the front-runner in polls throughout the campaign. Brazil's top prosecutor wants to arrest six leading politicians from the country's ruling party. And he's asking Brazil's top court for permission. Prosecutor Rodrigo Janot says the politicians have used various tactics in attempts to stop his investigation into corruption. Because some of the politicians hold congressional seats, the prosecutor must get permission from the Supreme Federal Tribunal, Brazil's Supreme Court. The politicians are all part of the Brazilian Democratic Movement Party, or the PMDB. The PMDB took power in Brazil last month, with Michel Temer holding the title of interim president, while suspended President Dilma Rousseff faces an impeachment trial. The prosecutor's list includes former Brazilian President Jose Sarni, the suspended president of the Chamber of Deputies, Eduardo Cunha, various members of Congress, and one of Timmer's former cabinet ministers. Civil society groups are asking the International Criminal Court in The Hague to take action against Mexico. The calls for justice come after an extensive investigative report by the Open Society Justice Initiative. The report accused Mexican security forces of atrocities in how they fight the drug war against powerful cartels. The report includes details of extrajudicial killings, torture, kidnappings, and other crimes committed by the Mexican military and police. The Mexican government blamed most of the violence on drug cartels and said that when security forces overreacted, members of those forces had been punished. We'll have more details about the report later on in this program after this newscast. Some rare good news from Venezuela. Polar beer is back. Polar has Venezuela's biggest breweries and makes the country's favorite beers. But the breweries haven't been pumping out any new brew for two months. The brewer says it's due to a barley shortage, all tied to the country's economic crisis. The company laid off 10,000 workers when it shut off the taps, but Spanish bank BBVA came to the rescue this week with an emergency loan of $35 million. And the cold brews can't hit the shelves anytime too soon. The International Monetary Fund confirmed this week that it now estimates inflation in the country has hit 
700%. Bottoms up, Venezuela. For Latin Pulse, I'm Chorsey Martin. Thanks, Chorsey. Our shout out this week goes to our listeners in India. Our listening group in India was our third largest this past week, behind only our listeners in the United States and Mexico. So we say Danyavad to all of our listeners in India and elsewhere around the globe. And now we turn our attention to human rights. As we heard earlier, the Open Society Justice Initiative released its report about human rights violations in Mexico this week. The report is called Undeniable Atrocities, Confronting Crimes Against Humanity in Mexico. We had the opportunity to speak to the main author of the report, Eric Witte. He joined us via Skype from Mexico City. Uh, we were startled sort of by the crisis that hit Mexico uh, in the years following the large-scale deployment of the military um, from the end of 2006 onwards, um, and, and the spike in, in murders and disappearances and torture in particular. And so decided to look at this not um, through the classical human rights lens, but through the lens of individual criminal responsibility, and to analyze uh, these crimes um, through international criminal law um, to see whether they might rise to the level of crimes against humanity. And our conclusion uh, has been that uh, the actions by uh, federal armed forces, federal security forces, and, um, and the Zetas cartel uh, do indeed rise to the level, or there's reason to believe that they do rise to the level of crimes against humanity. Now, that's a standard that's used at the International Criminal Court under the Rome Statute um, for the prosecutor to request the opening of an investigation. Um, and Mexico, of course, is party to the Rome Statute. Do you think that there will be movement on that end to have the International Criminal Court pay attention to what you've assembled in your report? Well, some of the um, partner organizations who uh, have collaborated, collaborated with us on the report um, have already sent communications to the ICC uh, in recent years. And that, however, is not the main purpose of this report. Um, our report aims to help identify the nature of the problem and the nature of the obstacles to justice in Mexico so that the Mexican state and Mexican people can try to overcome those obstacles. There are many advantages to domestic justice versus justice at the International Criminal Court. Uh, domestic justice is, um, of course, much closer to the affected society, um, and that's important for, uh, for people to have an understanding of what's happening in these proceedings with the prosecutions and the defense case and the, um, and the reasoning by judges. It's, it's very hard to follow those things from thousands of miles away. And any situation that goes to the International Criminal Court uh, would result in only a handful of cases, um, whereas with proper domestic justice, there's potential uh, for a much broader uh, inquiry uh, and much broader accountability. And finally, you know, with trials in The Hague, um, there's very little impact on the domestic justice system, whereas if Mexico can overcome the obstacles, um, largely political obstacles, um, and be able to have genuine investigations and prosecutions for these crimes, uh, that would mean that um, it had undertaken 
uh, extensive reforms in order to enable that to happen. It would have a profound effect on the rule of law in Mexico uh, and would build trust in the population in the justice sector. And of course, currently, um, there's very little popular trust uh, in Mexico's justice system. And that's why uh, very few crimes in, in Mexico are reported to authorities in the first place. We have discussed many times on this program the problem of impunity in Mexico. And so I want to get back to that in, in some larger degree. But I also wonder what has been the response from the Mexican government, from the Pena Nieto administration, to this report? Um, so far, we've uh, only seen uh, a statement that was given to the New York Times in response to the report. Uh, and the upshot of that was... Um, First of all, that that these are isolated incidents, and secondly, that when uh, federal forces have engaged in murder, torture, and enforced disappearance, that they have been prosecuted and sentenced. And um, both of those things simply are not true. Um, it's not surprising, but nonetheless disappointing, that the government would respond by attempting to downplay the nature of the crisis. And uh, in the report... Um, this denial and minimization of, of the extent and nature of the crisis is uh, where the political obstruction to justice in Mexico begins. Um, it's, the, it's the failure to reckon with, honestly, with the, um, the extent of the crisis. And then that permeates throughout the system. The denial can take different forms, and it, uh, it often takes the form of uh, accusing um, victims of these crimes of um, being criminals themselves, uh, with often with no basis whatsoever for those accusations. Uh, it takes the form of attacking the messengers. And then that denial sort of sets the tone for the entire uh, justice sector um, and makes it much harder for those within the system who may want to do the right thing, who may want to perform their jobs properly, makes it very much harder for them to do so. Um, and, and this denial is then reflected in um, the poor data that the government keeps on uh, atrocity crimes, um, where crimes are often miscategorized as lesser offenses, um, it, again, in order to, to minimize the, uh, the extent and nature of the problem. Obviously, as you pointed out, it would be good if there was a localized uh, uh, a response from Mexico, certainly Civil society groups have been trying to work at, at creating a stronger rule of law and justice system in Mexico. But if we're to depend upon the Mexican state to make these changes, here we are half the way through the Peña Nieto administration, and um, likely what you're calling for, the type of quality changes in the justice system, may be another decade down the road. So we, the main recommendation of the report is the creation of um, an investigative commission with international participation um, that would be based in Mexico, that would have a mandate to conduct independent investigations of uh, atrocities and uh, grand corruption and to introduce cases in the Mexican court system. Um, and obviously that's um, probably not a popular idea uh, with the government at this time, but um, 
politics can change, and I think we saw what happened with the Ayotzinapa case. Um, prior to that, it would have been unthinkable that the government might have uh, invited in uh, um, the independent gr group of, of experts to audit a, a Mexican criminal case, and yet that's what happened after tens of thousands of people came into the streets and, and Mexico came under uh, enormous diplomatic pressure. Um, and so, sadly, you know, Mexico might be uh, one more prominent atrocity away from something like an internationalized investigative commission becoming politically viable. Well, I, I want to talk about an internationalized investigative commission, um, but you brought Ayatzinapa into this discussion, and so, yes, there was an investigation, but yet I was just in New York City and heard members of that commission say to us that they felt that they had not been heard at the end, that the Mexican government was still denying and had thwarted parts of their investigation. That's absolutely right, and it's a uh, cause for great concern. Um, so by no means uh, do we think that this is an easy um, ask of the Mexican government. Um, clearly, uh, the the willingness to um, properly investigate and prosecute these cases is uh, is not there, um, as as examined extensively in this report, um, and the, how that turned out with the Ayotzinapa case, um, despite sort of the the initial promise of the independent group of of experts, um, shows that that we're not close to a solution here. When you talk about such cases, international commissions that that have localized judicial power. I'm reminded of the UN body that is working in Guatemala to some success. Would you hope to model it after what is called the CICIG in Guatemala? Um, we're certainly very much aware of the successes of CICIG and, and have recently um, have done a report on, on that mechanism specifically. Um, we don't advocate the sort of replication of any one model um, in Mexico or anywhere else. I mean, any model would have to be adapted to the local context and circumstances and the local needs. That said, um, CICIG does appear to be the closest in type um, to the kind of commission that we're thinking of. Um, and there are positive and negative lessons to learn about CICIG. Um, and, I, I mean, I think on the positive side, it's that uh, such an international commission can really empower domestic actors within the justice system who, who want to do their jobs properly. And there are those people within PGR, within um, uh, other agencies of the state, um, who would, if, if given a chance, would want to do their jobs properly. So that, that's been encouraging from Guatemala. There are other lessons to learn about CICIG. Um, for example, it, it was sent in with a two-year mandate, um, which is simply insufficient. So you need, you need a commission that has uh, uh, at least um, a six-year mandate at the outset, um, probably longer than one presidential term for political reasons uh, would make sense. Um, these, these bodies need to be able to get their bearings and um, develop cases, and, and that takes some time. And certainly the renewal of those terms in Guatemala have become political events, uh, although we have seen the CICIG renewed for, for its 
mandate um, currently by the current Guatemalan president. But I wonder if there is a particular story um, from your research that capsulizes the need for justice in Mexico. Unfortunately, there there are a great number of stories that um, show the the obstacles. The um, I mean, there, there's Altinapa, Tanwato, Tlatlaya, Apatzingan. The the list goes on and on. And then there are the cases of um, individuals who. Uh, have lost family members um, who have been disappeared and who struggle to um, to make the justice system work and who make repeated visits to prosecutors and um, and investigators uh, pleading with them to um, undertake proper investigations and being given the bureaucratic runaround and um, being told that their their relative, you know, their son or their daughter was probably a member of organized crime anyway. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, there are just too many stories um, like that. And and that's what this report really looks at, that there are patterns here. Um, and it's the patterns that link up all of these individual stories So, and, and make evident that these are not isolated incidents. Thank you so much, Eric Witte the Open Society Justice Initiative, the principal author of Undeniable Atrocities Confronting Crimes Against Humanity in Mexico. Our guest today on Latin Pulse, joining us from Mexico City via Skype. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Rick. As a postscript to our discussion, we also wanted to share the views of the investigative team for the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, the group that recently finished its investigation into the Ayatzinapa case the case of 43 missing students from the state of Guerrero in Mexico. Here's Claudia Pazzi Paz, one of the members of the team and the former Attorney General of Guatemala. She says members of the team would continue holding press conferences to combat the denials of the Mexican government. Besides our examination of the case, all of our eyes and all of our voices will be used to advance international awareness of the case. Posse Paz says although the investigative team has concluded its official work, they believe they must continue their international campaign as a way of keeping faith with the families of the missing students. Coming up, Seeking Human Rights Justice in Guatemala. Stay with us. This is Tom Scared for the Borgen Project. Each year, nearly two million children die from preventable diseases. Each day, 30,000 people die from hunger. 500 each hour are children. The Borgen Project is turning this around. We need your help. To learn more, go to borgenproject.org. That's B-O-R-G-E-N project.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week we feature the second part of an interview recorded remotely at the Latin American Studies Association Conference in New York City. As we promised last week, here's our second segment with Joe Marie Burt of George Mason University in Virginia. She's also a senior fellow with the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA. Burt wanted to discuss the status of human rights trials in Guatemala with us, including the retrial of former dictator Efrain Rios Montt on genocide charges. The genocide case in Guatemala, it's, it's very complicated. 
and it's meant to be complicated. I think that the powers that be have been on sort of a... They've made deliberate efforts to complicate the genocide trial. They don't really want this trial to ever come back. So it's hard to figure out what's exactly going on. But I want to take us back to 2013, when the trial happened. I was in the courtroom uh, the day of the verdict, and it was a most extraordinary moment. I was able to observe the, the trial in different moments as well. And it was extraordinary um, to see... Survivors, relatives of victims coming day after day into that courtroom looking Rios Mont and his chief of intelligence, Rodriguez Sanchez, in the eye. That process of a court of law listening to people who for 30 years had been systematically ignored was so powerful. Um, that, nothing erases that. Nothing erases that. And I think it's important to keep in mind the legacy of the trial, of the process itself, and how processes can generate change. The outcome, the legal outcome of the trial, as we know, there was a verdict. The court found Rios Mont guilty of genocide and of crimes against humanity, um, sentenced him to 80 years, and 10 days later, the Constitutional Court partially annulled the proceedings, which in effect vacated the verdict. And since then, we have had multiple attempts to have a restart of the genocide trial, each of which has failed for different reasons. That you can go onto the International Justice Monitor blog, where I and others have written about this, to read about the details if you're interested. But the bottom line is that it's just been mired down in illegal, illegal quicksand. And I think it will never get out because the powers that be do not want it to get out. They do not want a trial for genocide. And so since then, we've had the Sepulcarco uh, sexual violence and sexual domestic slavery case come to trial. I was an observer to that trial. I wrote about that also on the International Justice Monitor. Um, Stunning case where 11 Kekchi indigenous Mayan uh, women, after years of being uh, stigmatized and living in silence, um, came, brought this case to trial and they managed to get two a military official, a lieutenant colonel, convicted and a military commissioner convicted for these atrocious crimes. I have to tell you, when, when we hear these stories of women not just imprisoned wrongly, but also abused, not just for weeks, but for years. 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 The, it's stunning. No, it's just it's stunning. I, I, I'm not sure that people outside Guatemala understand the, the, the depth of, of that type of atrocity. Well, I, 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 you know, I do write about it. It's very hard to talk about because it's so... It's terrifying what these women experienced, but I did write about it as part of my trial observation. I wanted the reader to get a sense of the kind of the, the, the kind of the details of these atrocities that we learned about in in this case. And there were just some absolutely terrifying stories. One woman told you know, she would you know her home was nearby where the soldiers had to walk to get water 
And whenever they would go to get water, they would go in her house and they would rape her. And this happened to her, you know, every other day for years. Women had to go to the military base in shifts every third day or so to service. And by that, I mean to be raped by the military. There was one moment in that when the, the lieutenant colonel, Estilman Reyes was his name, was giving his allegation at the very end, his closing statements. And he accused the women of being prostitutes. And it was just stunning. After having heard these 15 women's testimonies, to hear him say such a horrendous thing. But what choice did he have? He was trying to to save himself, right? Um, you were there in the courtroom. And so I'm sure you had a, a sense of what these women were going through in this process. We see the pictures from from that trial, the women's heads covered, that they still feel shame for no, what they endured. No, no. Let me clarify that because this is, and a lot of people have asked me this question. It is true that the women covered their heads during the entire trial. Um, in many cases of sexual violence that come to court, women are able to give their testimony in private. The courts in Guatemala have determined that the women should testify in open court. This happened in the genocide trial as well. So the women testified, but as a way to protect, their names were said aloud in court. People wouldn't be too difficult to figure out who they were. But they covered their face to avoid themselves being photographed and from being perhaps identified back at home, because there is some stigma back at home. But these women, they have gone through years of healing, working with psychologists and social workers, not just for themselves as individuals, but as a community. And so I've met with these women. They are so strong. It is stunning to me that I, mean, I, 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 don't, I, I would feel terrified were I in their shoes, right? Um, so covering their, it was an act of, in some ways we could see it as an act of resistance. I'm here, and I'm testifying, but I, I'm not going to allow you to see my face and photograph the most intimate part of me, because you've already defiled me. But I'm still here, I'm a survivor, and I am now reclaiming my own history and demanding justice. I just... I think that's the way to think about it. I don't think it's about them still feeling stigmatized and shamed. And I think this is one of the things that the marvelous women lawyers from the different organizations, Women Transforming the World, Unam Hey, um, ICAP, that worked with these women for so many years, they say one of the things we've tried to do in this trial is turn the tables, make the stigma associated with sexual violence turn away from the victims and be placed where it should be on the perpetrators. First time in Guatemala that a sexual violence case from the armed conflict was prosecuted in a, in a, in a Guatemalan court. And the first time internationally, as far as we know, that domestics, um, domestic and sexual slavery 
was tried in a domestic court. So, huge precedent in this case. Thank you so much, Joe Marie Burt of George Mason University and the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, the author of Silencing Civil Society, Political Violence and the Authoritarian State in Peru, our guest today on Latin Pulse, coming to you remotely from New York City and the Latin American Studies Association Conference. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for joining us for Latin Pulse this week. We want to acknowledge the Latin American Studies Association, LASA, for its help in supporting our work at its recent convention in New York City. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. You can also find our program at the website, Latin America Goes Global. You can find that website at Latin America Goes Global, written as all one word, dot O-R-G. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, we're available in other locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website. You can find it at linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin dash pulse. That's linktv.org slash Latin dash pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, production assistant Georgie Martin and technical director Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions. Music